I'm Emily. And I'm Kay. And this is Second Lead Syndrome. A podcast homage to our K-pop culture side pieces. Today we're going to be talking about standing talent, and this is a hugely controversial and important concept in K-pop fandom, and it raises a lot of questions for us, one of which is, like, what does it mean for uh, an idol group to be good? Like, when we say, like, my bias group is amazing, what do we mean by that? And so today we're going to talk a little bit about what that means to us and how we can better understand K-pop fandom through looking at what talent means to us. So when we say stand talent, what do we mean by that? I think it means that we should be fans of groups that are really doing something that's impressive, that's that's uh, virtuosic, that um, reminds us of the best that music has to offer. So for example, um, a lot of folks like Mamamoo because they think they're a really strong group vocally and their performances are always um, technically well done for example so when we say stand talent we also mean like that we should pay attention to groups who aren't necessarily the most popular um, but they are known for giving like great performances or great shows I guess the question is talent as a value over kind of like what other qualities you could be a fan for, right? So Mm -hmm. maybe we should talk a little bit about, other than talent, what are some of the reasons that people would say they're a stan of a group, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are some of the things that you think of and why talent is sort of juxtaposed in opposition or in conjunction with those different qualities? Mm -hmm. Sure. I think that a lot of the factors that contribute to groups' um, popularity have to do with their looks, their um, behavior as a team, their performance on not just the stage, but um, on variety shows and whether their members take part in other kinds of activities like dramas. Um, And so, yeah, we do have kind of a conflict of sorts between people being really good at performing music and being good at kind of all these other factors that go into being an idol or at least that their fans perceive them as being good at those things. And so, you know, we can have all these debates that, you know, such and such group is better than this other group, but I don't, I I often don't find those debates like all that useful or interesting because people being like good at music is such a subjective decision, right? Which leads us to this question of like, why do I think a certain group is good, but you might not find that group appealing at all? And you might think, yeah, they're not even like good at the music part of it. So I wanted to ask you, like, is there anybody who can, any social theorists, for example, who can tell us more and enlighten us about like, why do we find some groups good and others not so good? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most important social theorists of the 20th century, Pierre Bourdieu, actually offers some really insightful thoughts about why people like what they like um, and how they make particular kinds of judgment claims 
based on those sorts of things. Um, and I think the kind of master text in which he expounds his ideas about issues around taste, particularly with respect to one's class status, is a book called Distinction. Um, so just to give people a little bit of background on who Bourdieu is, uh, Pierre Bourdieu is a sociologist and more broadly a social theorist. So Bourdieu is known for his attention between structure and agency in the way that um, individuals navigate the world. And what does he mean by structure? Well, structure, uh, broadly speaking, refers to a given social system that an individual is embedded in. So that involves various institutions, both public and private. Um, it involves government. It involves the economic system that you are functioning in. So, you know, whether that's a certain form of capitalism or a certain form of socialism, um, you know, these are examples of ways in which an uh, individual is embedded in a broader social structure. And then agency, uh, you know, roughly speaking, refers to uh, an individual's ability to act um, and sort of their whether or not they have some kind of like political will to act um, in a certain way or respond to the system that they're functioning in. So mm. essentially structure and agency is this tension in which you have these social structures that shape your behavior, that shape the institutions that you come in contact with, the access that you have to different resources, your given social position. And then agency is in part your kind of mobility as far as how you can move through those structures, how you can push back against them, how much power you have to act, um, how you behave, what resources you accumulate, what kinds of social positions you hold, um, and your ability to kind of work within those um, with respect to your your daily actions. Um, so that's, that's sort of the broad overarching theoretical concept that I think ties a lot of Bourdieu's work together. Um, and I think a good place to start in terms of thinking about where are we situated societally speaking, right? Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So then how, how does Bourdieu help us understand what groups we might be drawn to or what kinds of music within K-pop we might be drawn to or even the fact that we're interested in K-pop in the first place? Right. I think that's a great question. And really the important text that I'm drawing from in terms of what we're talking about today is, again, this this really seminal text called Distinction. You know, it's a book that, depending on which edition you have, is going to be, you know, three to four hundred pages long. And in that text, he talks a lot about um, what we would call taste, right? So in terms of when people say, I stand this group, or when people talk about like, I really love the vocal quality of this person. These are things that we often say are a matter of taste, right? But what Bourdieu argues in distinction is that taste is not merely personal preference. And it's not merely something that we've just developed on our own, mm -hmm. irrespective of our social context, right? So this ties back to the whole issue of the tension between structure and agency. What we like is partly a choice. That's what we would maybe say is agency, right? But the social structures that we're embedded in, how we grow up, how we're raised, 
what becomes habitual for us. And Bourdieu calls this habitus, right? It's a term that's derived from sort of Aristotelian theories about you know, humans' existence in the world or Aristotelian philosophy or what have you, um, which basically is about this idea that, you know, our everyday lived experiences become so habitual that we almost don't even notice. We, we're less fully conscious of our ways of being in the world. Um, so that's everything from, you know, the coffee you drink to the you know, way you commute to work, for example. You know, just these little kind of seemingly quotidian things that we come to take for granted because they're just such a part of the way we've been living in the world. It's like the fish that doesn't know that it's swimming in water, right? Mm-hmm. Bourdieu would say, like, swimming in the water is your is the fish's habitus and, you know, the fish doesn't realize that this is not how everybody else is, is functioning, right? Mm-hmm. So um, basically, you know, the structure that we're embedded in constrains what sorts of choices we have and how we make those choices. Um, and so, again, when people claim to like a group and it's just a matter of personal opinion, Bourdieu would probably push back on that statement and say, look, your personal opinion is indeed partly something that is wrought of, you know, your own individual agency. But at the same time, you're occupying a particular social position or your habitual sort of training to like what you like is also a function of whatever social structures you're kind of caught up in. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where we get into these questions of, you know, objective criteria for Mm -hmm. what makes a good group kind of become unseated a lot if you turn to a theoretician like Bourdieu who says, actually, these aren't objective criteria. They're all kind of socially interested criteria, Mm -hmm. right? They have a particular social or political agenda that becomes advanced through choosing certain criteria for what is good and what is bad. Great. So that leads me to a question because obviously like a lot of us who have bias groups and now that I'm thinking about this like the role of structure in shaping our taste like bias is actually a really appropriate term for that because the groups that we like are a reflection not only of our own choice but also the ways that our choices have been shaped by the structures around us. So I have this question because there are some groups that are widely acknowledged in certain ways as like these groups are extremely talented and just no one can challenge that. Um, And I was thinking about this piece I read about um, SM groups who are who were involved in this like I'm not even sure how to describe the institution but it was called SM the performance and the idea was that SM was presenting these groups Um, in a way that showcased their virtuosity in all areas of the performance act itself. So like not only are they amazing dancers, but they can also sing with, you know, perfect virtuosity while they're doing the dancing. And you can also hear in their performance, you can hear the, you know, the amazing quality of the music. So like all of these things came together to form SM the performance. And so this piece's argument was that like the artists who are involved in SM the performance are like so good at what they do. And like that was like the premise was that SM the performance can be marketed because the artists are good at what they do. 
Mm-hmm. So, like, how does Bourdieu um, help us to better understand, like, why this argument can be put out there that, like, these artists are just so good? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess we can use singing or vocal talent, right, as an example of this question of what is so good, mm-hmm. right? Because, first of all, you know, for those of us who are aware of the whole kind of company idol training process, right? The idols get vocal coaching. So you have a whole social structure that's set up in which there's a certain kind of vocal coach that gives you a certain kind of training for how to sing in a certain kind of way, right? And I think, you know, there's loads of scholarship written about various different, say, like talent shows um, that have kind of become part of the mainstream. So this is yet another strain that I think influences how people think about what is vocally virtuosic. Um, If you look at those kinds of qualities, right, often one of the things that I think of is the glory note, Mm. right? So the glory note becomes this marker of that is what a vocally talented person embodies, right, is the Mm -hmm. glory note. Um, And I think, you know, maybe we could do a little bit more thinking about, like, why is the glory note, like, what sort of social interest (laughs) does the glory note advance, right? It advances a kind of bombastic stage presence. It advances a particular kind of, you know, flashy marketing kind of you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing here about why that would be, but I think it's it's one way in which you could use, you know, Bourdieu's theory about taste to think about why is it that this is considered purely vocal talent, right? If we use something like the criteria of the glory note or one's ability to ad lib, then the question I think you always want to ask when you're thinking about those kinds of criteria is who does that exclude? who is then not considered part of a particular kind of of talent, right? So what if we were more concerned with, say, phrasing? Or what if we were more concerned with, like, saying that glory notes are overused or melisma is overused, Mm -hmm. right? Which, you know... um, are certain qualities of like certain eras of pop music, which then become like a standard of the genre, right? Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's that structure of like what is considered hallmarks of the genre and are people meeting these particular hallmarks of the genre, right? So mm-hmm. that's one question where you're like, yeah, but okay, this person can hit these glory notes, but does that mean that their sense of phrasing is any good? Um, you know what I mean? Like I think that it is are they able to harmonize, you know? Um, I think there's lots of different criteria that play into it. And it's interesting when you think about a company like SM because it's one of the biggest forces in K-pop, they are often setting the agenda for what are the industry trends, right? And so to put forth these criteria in some way, if you wanna look at like what is the interest involved, the interest is putting forth a certain kind of vocal quality that then we market as being the gold standard for talent, right? And that they're continuing to control what that looks like or that they have a huge hand in controlling what that looks like and therefore Mm -hmm. attracting an audience towards like a marketable product. So that's, I think, one example of how you could implement Bourdieu's theory to think more reflexively about why you think something is 
is good. Sure. And that also makes me think a lot about how like company loyalty emerges. When I first got into K-pop, I didn't know anything about the companies, but I found myself drawn to certain groups of others and like later learned that they were all coming from similar, either similar companies or like the same companies. Um, And I wonder if that's because, I mean, I think Bourdieu would say that's because like SM has a certain sound that it values like above others or like a certain presentation that it sets forth and like I'm sure there are other structural factors involved as well but SM has created a structure to market itself and SM says this is what's good and I say oh okay and kind of I mean subconsciously but then kind of move through groups in that way. Yeah well I mean I think again to go back to kind of like using Bourdieu's theory, part of what he says is the whole point of using taste as a form of, you know, what he calls cultural capital, right? Capital being, you know, this is largely linked to kind of Marxist theory, right, about how the capitalist systems function. But essentially what Bourdieu says is he expands on Marx's notion of kind of economic capital, which is like, you know, money, like hardcore like resources that are economic. And what he says is that for people to continue to like hold a particular class position, they will also accumulate cultural capital. And you can convert that cultural capital into economic capital, but it kind of shields you from or gives you an additional way of holding on to some sort of class power, right? Um, And so cultural capital is like, SM has a lot of cultural capital, right? It isn't just that they're making a ton of profit. It's that they also have a kind of cultural cash to to draw on, right? Like Mm -hmm. that they have a power over kind of like I can set the agenda for what is good, good talent. But at the same time, what cultural capital does that Bourdieu says is why we have cultural capital in addition to economic capital is that cultural capital or the idea of taste often appears disinterested, Mm -hmm. right? It says, this is just how it is, right? This is just talent. And it masks the interests that lie underneath it. It masks the interests that are trying, you know, it masks a particular social position that someone is trying to retain, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, I think, part of how you can look at this example as well, is to say, you know, when they say this is performance, right? This is the standard. It's like, they're trying to appear, it's like it appears disinterested, but actually there's like an interest at the heart of it, right? Which is again, mm-hmm. profit, right? It's mm-hmm. still it's still about a particular profit margin, even as we can appreciate a variety of other things that are affixed to it, right? Thanks for listening to Second Lead Syndrome. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love to have your support so that we can post all our episodes online and keep them available. We've got some great thank yous like exclusive content on our website and shout outs in our episode credits, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash second lead syndrome. That's 2ND lead syndrome. And thanks again for listening. My question is, isn't that too um, deterministic? Doesn't that take away a lot of like my own individual choice by saying like, oh, there are these these, um, invisible structures that are actually determining what you like and what you want. Um, isn't there any room for people to actually consciously decide, like, this is what I like because I like it? 
Yeah, so I think that that kind of goes back to the way that I had been framing Bourdieu and where he's situated theoretically earlier, right? Um, That there's this tension between structure and agency. And I think to bring it back to sort of where we lie as anthropologists, there's a anthropologist Sherry Ortner, um, whose work comes after Bourdieu, um, and what she does is a really great job of kind of synthesizing um, like how different theorists balance that tension between structure and agency. So I think you're absolutely right in saying, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room if you look at Bourdieu's argument for kind of exercising a whole lot of agency. And I think that that's one of the big critiques that gets lodged against Bourdieu and his work more broadly um, is that he affords too much to the structure, too much Mm -hmm. to the idea that um, we're stuck in these particular social positions or, you know, positions of, in his case, I think mostly class positions, right? Because that's the examples that he's drawing upon in distinction, for example, um, where it's it's someone's class background and then that is where whatever you're listening to, whatever you know you claim as as your taste is simply you reasserting or trying to hold on to a particular position, right? Um, or keep someone else in a particular position. So, you know, I think that the big challenge to push back on that is saying, what if we gave more agency to people rather than their position, right? That, again, what you're saying is that it's potentially overly deterministic, right? That, like, if you are from X class... Then then you must like Y things. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, that's that's a caricature of of Bourdieu's work, I think, especially for a 400-page book-like distinction. I think it's, it's a... It's, it's, it's a caricature. But if you really want to make the theoretical differences clear, which I think is, is our aim, right? It's, it's to sort of give people tools to think with, right? If, you, like if you're just trying to grasp this idea, I think it's important to think about how Bourdieu emphasizes the structure and, and the power that that has to determine what you are interested in and what you think you like. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have other theorists who would... Um, I think give a lot more credence uh, in juxtaposing themselves often against Bourdieu um, to this idea of individuals or people collectively having more of a role in creating what is good taste, right? And and there's a another French theorist. Today is like French theorist day, <laughs> for better or for worse. Uh, there is a French theorist. Antoine Agnon, and, you know, I don't speak French, so I'm not really in a position to pronounce any of these names 100% properly, if that's even... I mean, that's a whole other discussion about language ideology, <laughs> but... We'll, we'll put up a link. How about that? Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, but essentially, um, you know, Agnon, when he's talking about taste, he kind of says Bourdieu is, quote-unquote, overly deterministic about how taste is, is shaped. And what Agnon argues is that taste is a performance and that those who are performing taste have a role in shaping and reshaping what taste is about. And, and that gets into kind of 
scholarly ideas about what performance means, but you could say performance isn't just getting on a stage and being like SM the performance and singing or, you know, um, kind of for for an audience on a, on a stage, but that even in our everyday lives, in our social interactions, we are performing certain roles. Um, but in the act of performance, because a performance is an act, right? And if you go back to the definition of agency, which partly means your ability to act, that performing taste has this kind of what scholars would say is agentive, right? That has mm -hmm. something to do with agency, right? That asserts agency in a particular way. And so Enyon talks about the role of, say, amateurs, whether they're wine drinkers or coffee consumers or people who play music um, as a, as a quote-unquote hobby, right? Um, and, and that they are, you know, not, not the professionals and, and, and yet they are still through their their performance of taste shaping a certain idea about what that what that looks like right mm -hmm. so he's he's giving a little bit more over to the balance of agency right mm -hmm. um, and you know again that's that's sort of a reductive look at what these theorists are saying but if you want those ideas about how to use the theory you've got to kind of start from you know these these much more sort of broadly defined kinds of oppositions or, or balances of, of kind of what structure does and what agency allows you to do. Mm -hmm. It makes me think a lot about how in the community of K-pop fans on the internet, there's a lot of um, like mutual reinforcement of what is good and what isn't good. Um, and I think, you know, about reaction videos and how there are lots of people participating in that kind of performance, like a reaction video is essentially someone sitting down and performing their reaction to different videos. And that can play a big role in how the people who are watching them think of a given music video. Because if the reactioner pulls out a certain element and says like, oh, this is really good or I love how they did this thing, then suddenly everyone else is like, oh, that must be a good thing that I should be paying attention to. to. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, that's just one of the ways in which um, that kind of performance that Enion talks about might be evident in the K-pop community. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, even the reaction themselves are, are a performance, mm -hmm. right? Even even more so than than an average kind of like you're you're listening to it and, and making kind of these adjudications in your own head as you're listening to these things on your own. You know, Enyong has a lot of interesting um, commentary when he talks about taste as performance about kind of the listener experience and how you listen to something and, and what listening does for people individually, but also yeah, I think reaction videos are kind of an extreme example in which people have created their own criteria for how to how to listen to something and watch something. Because um, I think it isn't just the music, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. they're responding to the visual cues as well, um, you know, and thereby kind of shaping their own criteria, which I think, and they're also shaping like a different vision of who is supposed to listen to K-pop. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you look at sort of like the production end of things. Right. And you can argue, say that the production end produces certain ideas about what we are supposed to listen to. But then you also have that, like the listener isn't just a passive listener. They are an active 
listener there and active, actively engaging with the media in ways that aren't always predicted by like what's being produced or, or they're not necessarily like making the music video anticipating all the time that these certain people are going to be our audience, right? Mm-hmm. So like how do you see that playing out with reaction videos, for example? Mm-hmm. I think about it seems to me like for a long time there was kind of a lack of clarity in the fandom about like who all who all is here, right? And um, in the last few years, there's been kind of a crystallization of um, different um, groups of people who are like, yes, we are K-pop fans. Like we have this other identity and we're K-pop fans. Like I'm thinking of like black K-pop fans in particular, like, mm-hmm. you know, in in real life, quote unquote, outside of the internet, you don't necessarily think of um, like African-American people as like, of course they would be interested in Asian music, right? But because of the the crystallization in these fan communities and the ways that that, that kind of taste has become acceptable on the internet, now I think there's a lot more openness. Yeah. That. I mean, I think that's one of the most exciting things about being a K-pop fan and um, just being a, a fan of, of Korean popular media or pop culture as well is that you see the ways in which the fandom is so much more heterogeneous than I think you might first assume, uh, you know, when you start getting into this stuff. It's it's very, it's very eclectic. Like, mm-hmm. I still kind of marvel at the kinds of people that, that K-pop brings together, right? And that isn't just through the the engineering of the of the companies or what the companies are trying to do to uh, you know catch capture a certain market share right you know I, I I think like there is this way in which yeah unexpected people find their way to k-pop for different reasons than the ones that like structurally are supposedly dictating whether or not you like this stuff mm-hmm. um, and that's what I think is in, that's what I think is so interesting about kind of fan communities. Um, and why I think those are places where there's really a lot of compelling stuff going on, socially speaking, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but at the same time, are there examples where you see kind of that structure pushing back mm. despite this kind of, you know, flu- fluorescent heterogeneity, <laughs> you know? I do think of um, ways in which maybe this the structuring forces are maybe not as clear on on how audiences will respond or um, or maybe how there's some kind of ambiguity there around what the taste actually is and how much taste can be shaped. So for example, um, we were talking about um, newest and how they've been around for several years now. like I think it's been like five years that they've been around, but they just haven't achieved you know, a strong fandom or like a lot of acclaim in within the K-pop world, um, as opposed to Seventeen, which a group that comes from the same company, but seems to be experiencing a lot more success. Right, right. Um, yeah, they're both from Pledis Entertainment, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that they come out of the same company because it's a small company. They're not one of those big three Right. So it's this interesting tension where you're looking at a company that maybe doesn't have as much cultural capital 
to define the shape of the genre in the way that we were talking about how SM the performance or SM the ballad, right, is is pushing the agenda for like melisma and glory notes in SM the ballad, right? Like Mm -hmm. I just think of Hot Times as this perfect example of like all you get in that song are cascades of melisma and glory notes. And that isn't to say that it isn't a jam in certain ways, right? But it's it's a certain agenda that then when you look at kind of a lot of the K-pop that has come after and what people kind of are always looking for, you know, um, and this goes back to the example of, of reaction videos, right? So I think sometimes you watch reaction videos and then the reaction videos are responding to the glory note, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or they're they're kind of doing this like response to the melisma, right? And, and that part of it, I don't know, like, yeah, how much of that is because now they've come to expect that like, you know, every K-pop song that's a ballad is going to have this like glory note thing happening or whatever, right? Like that that's an expectation that people now have um, for something that they want to they listen to and that they value. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's interesting that you get this kind of, yeah, pushback about it, but it's, it's a company that's kind of in the middle of it. Right. So they're mm-hmm. they're sort of responding to what the in- industry at large expects. But then they're also doing their own sort of interpretation of what that looks like with, I think, 17 that they did not do with newest. Right. So I think this is true of a lot of K-pop groups that you see sort of going through the paces of, of what is expected in the genre and yet not achieving that level of recognition of you know, huge fandoms, um, and it's this question of why. Um, And I think that, you know, kind of juxtaposing Seventeen and Newest, which are from the same company, so that you could, you know, if you look at it as you're controlling the variable of what company, uh, you know, artists are coming from. So it isn't about the company's cultural capital. It's Mm -hmm. about the strategy that they're using to say we are fulfilling the markers of what you think, like, you're going to like. Um, that's, I think, where you see this big difference or one of the factors that contributes to the huge differential in terms of the success that Newest has had versus the success that uh, Seventeen has, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, you could talk about what is it that Seventeen is doing that Newest did not do or has not yet done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like there's, you know, Seventeen has more versatility, um, I partly I assume because they're a larger group so they can um, take on more genres or specialize more within the group does that seem like it could play a role I think it plays a huge role (laughs) especially because you have three specific units right so what are the what are the units in 17 it's vocal unit uh, hip-hop unit and performance unit mm-hmm. right so it's like already again it's speaking to those standards of okay these are the kinds of talent that you're supposed to look for and you're supposed to stand right it's mm-hmm. like giving you uh the expectations that you're you're looking for right and that like even the way they were crafting the group was through these particular strains. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the way that when I'm like now thinking about it, I'm like when you go to a restaurant, 
your choices are inherently limited by the menu, like what's on the menu. You, you know, you can't just go to an Italian restaurant and say, I want bibimbap. Like you're, you're limited by what's on the, so like, so 17 is sort of presenting this menu of like, here are the choices of like, this is what's good. This is what we can do. Um, and I think it's true for the, the genre as a whole as well. Like there are options within it, but in some ways there are structures that limit what is possible within the genre. Mm. So I guess it's kind of like, I mean, I'm trying to go with your analogy. <laughs> is it like, 17 is sort of like a prefix menu or well maybe it's more like it's more like when you go to a pizza restaurant and they have you know their pre-made ones that have different stuff but there's also like make your own with different toppings that you yourself can select so you might say like yeah i like 17's hip-hop music but i don't care for their other stuff but you're still a 17 fan right Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you might be someone who likes all of it, so you're buying all of those albums, um, and basically, like, you're tripling whatever profits they're gaining. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what they do that's that's really interesting, as opposed to, say, like, even a group that comes from the big three, like a Super Junior, right, which has, I think, about the same number of members... And, yeah, you have the individual members that are expected to do those kinds of things, but they're not sort of clearly demarcated and then marketed out as those units based on kind of talent uh, wheelhouses as much, right? So, I mean, you get the, like, Unhook Donghe or, like, Super Junior M and then kind of solo efforts that the guys do, but it's not segmented in this clearly demarcated way in in the way that 17 does it right and mm-hmm. i think that's what's so interesting about the way 17 is structured it's structured in this clearly demarcated way that i think makes the kind of consumption and the identification easier mm-hmm. and i don't think it fully accounts for their success as a group but i think it does make that kind of large group format more manageable, especially when you're coming from a small company. Like, I think that that was, you know, I'd love to talk to someone from Plotus to be like, is this something that you guys thought about? And I'm pretty sure they did. I mean, I don't think that that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I'm like, Plotus folks, if you're listening, <laughs> give us a call. <laughs> we have questions for you. Yeah, but I, I think that that's fascinating because, yeah, if you have a group with that many members, it gets kind of unwieldy. Like, I think that you sort of end up maxing out on your ability to keep track of people past maybe, like, the six or seven mark. It, I think it gets really hard, and that that requires an immense amount of resources to kind of sustain that large of a group, right? Which is why mm-hmm. you, you'll see it in K-pop, but then you also, like, don't see it that often beyond that number, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that this is kind of one of those few instances where they've kind of made it super clear, like, these are the different teams, mm-hmm. and you can root for all of it or some of it. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's it's the, it's the pizza, make your own toppings, versus kind of like, well, we'll give you these different orders for, like, these specific kinds of pizzas. And those pizzas are, like, super delicious, no mm-hmm. doubt about it. I mean, we can talk for days, and I think <laughs> this is something that – you know, like, we want to highlight is that there are groups out there with, like, delicious flavors that, like, because you've decided or you have more options with make-your-own toppings or you like another pizza already, 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of like I've recently sort of come to really love a lot of newest stuff, especially kind of their later releases, which I think um, have a really nuanced quality to them that I really enjoy. But it's not sort of making the same kind of splash mm-hmm. um, as other groups. I think it's it's sort of something about like the plateau of, of visibility, which has kind of forced Pletus, I think, to kind of rethink the strategy for it or try to get them out more visibly through, say, like possibly booking them on Produce 101, mm. which is now seen as another kind of star-making vehicle, right? So this is where you're creating new structures, right? Like there's always that reality show launch structure. That's another way that people like find out about groups, mm-hmm. another way that structures taste, right? Like mm-hmm. because even those yep. shows have their own judging criteria that where certain people rise to the top. And mm-hmm. so it's another attempt at kind of trying to meet the standards while like reinscribing or trying to shift what those standards are, you know. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if we could think about other examples of how you know, there's still that structuring function, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, speaking of pizza toppings, like they're like the perennial pepperoni pizza, right? You just can't go wrong, it, in my opinion. But <laughs> but like you're always going to have an option for pepperoni pizza, no matter what pizza restaurant you're at. Same thing in K-pop. Not that you can always get pepperoni pizza, but um, that we always find these um, elements of hip hop. And I've been, I mean, I've thought about that for a long time. What does this mean in different configurations? I think, you know, there's a long history of hip-hop and K-pop being intertwined. And it's come out in different ways over the last few years. Um, But I've, you know, thought lately about how um, hip-hop as uh, an aesthetic is present so much of the time, not only in the music that and you know any given group does but also in their aesthetics so like when we see k-pop idols coming out with you know like their snapbacks and like their chains and stuff or doing um dance moves that are reminiscent of break dancing um i think a lot about how like in maybe was that 2013 2014 ish when it was like every boy group that came out was like we have a hip-hop concept like Mm -hmm. and everyone was doing that and it seems like a great example of how structure was really active in shaping what was available in the field so my question based on this example you're giving is how what is what does hip-hop provide k-pop in terms of social positioning Mm -hmm. right if you're Mm -hmm. thinking about Mm -hmm. it from the standpoint of like applying this theory to it what kind of power or what kind of social relation like why hip-hop yeah of all things yeah Mm -hmm. I think that we can trace that back to the American music industry and the sort of global presence of American music and pop culture all over the world Um, and there's like a lot of reasons for that which we can get into at some point um But I think of uh, the popularity, for example, of Michael Jackson, who's not strictly hip hop, but is closely related in many ways to how um, African-American produced music in the U.S. has such amazing currency while at the same time 
overall conditions for African-Americans are like not that great. So there's some kind of, I don't know if we would call it like fetishization or tokenization of black cultural forms in the U.S. that then gets spread overseas. Um, And I think that's likely what happened with hip hop as well as hip hop became more mainstream in the 90s and was exported. um, There's, you know, it carried that cool factor with it. Um, And I think that that's likely um, a huge part of the sort of um, imitative factors that we see in K-pop. So, for example, like every song having a rap section, like a rap verse or rap break. um, And there's like an official position for a rapper in every idol group Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or almost every group. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's like to go back to the 17 example, it's like, well, you've got your hip hop you've got the mm-hmm. hip-hop like mm-hmm. segment and this is what they specialize in and they're supposedly like really good at it and but at the same time what's so interesting about that is that it allows for because it's just part of the group it allows for the group to do other things too um and some people in the group don't have to be fluent in whatever the tools of hip-hop are that they're using, right? So it allows for a lot more versatility than a group that's trying to learn the tools of hip-hop and learn the tools of ballads and, like, whatever other aesthetics they want. Yeah, it also gets into this relationship of, like, how do K-pop artists understand Mm hip-hop? What do they use it for? And, like, who are they doing it for? Like, I think these are questions that I I really have about, like, what the, what is that relationship like? And I think there's there's plenty of examples that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I mean, I think the one that we really would like to talk about a lot, especially because they're so popular, uh, is BTS. Yep. Um, so much going on there. <laughs> In fact, that might have to be a whole nother episode. Absolutely. I mean, part of what I think is really interesting about it, and I think something that we've talked about um, a lot, is that, you know, before BTS kind of had that banner year, is like where they really broke through and got huge mainstream popularity. Um, you know, they were always, I think, even from the start, branding themselves as a hip-hop-oriented group. Mm-hmm. But the show American Hustle Life, I think, is this kind of turning point where they start to craft their hip-hop identity in a different way. Mm-hmm. And in a way that I think you could argue is different from the relationship to hip-hop that a lot of other K-pop artists have um you know and you can look at like just korean hip-hop itself as a whole nother engagement that obviously has some crossovers with sort of k-pop more broadly or idol groups but uh you know within the idol group realm i think bts occupies this very unique relationship with hip-hop that i think comes out of american hustle life and their experience Mm -hmm. with that And, you know, you can argue about how much purchase that has on their music, but I think that that's a discussion that we want to continue to have Mm -hmm. sort of beyond this initial discussion about it because I think it is such an interesting and unique case of how initially they're using the structure, right, Mm -hmm. of like, okay, hip-hop signals 
power, mainstream appeal, American music, and like the prestige that comes with American pop music, which is why you could argue there's lots of K-pop elements that are partly derivative of kind of American pop music traditions. Right. I mean, obviously, it's doing it in different ways and recombining it, so it isn't just kind of like aping the music, right? Like, I think we wouldn't be K-pop fans if it was just aping American music outright, right? Right. Um, but there is this whole element in which, um, yeah, they, they, I think, do something very different with hip-hop and K-pop and there's sort of the pre-American hustle life and then there's the post-American hustle life. I actually think if you were to do sort of a retrospective of like BTS's career, that that would be like a major way of marking its peri- mm-hmm, their period. Like a turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think mm-hmm. it, it was highly instrumental in shaping like a different relationship between K-pop and hip-hop and how it gets used. Um, but that there's really nobody else out there kind of doing that in the same way. And I, I think that's part of what explains their foothold. I don't mm-hmm. think it's, again, mm-hmm. the entire explanation. I don't want to be overly determined <laughs> about that, but I think that's part of it. Connect with us on Twitter at Second Lead, that's 2ND Lead, or email us at Second Lead Syndrome, 2ND Lead Syndrome at gmail.com. You can find additional content and links to full audio and video mentioned on Second Lead Syndrome at secondleadsyndrome.wordpress.com. Our theme was composed by Kevin Vitz Wong. You can hear more of his music at soundcloud.com slash arsprosthetica. On the next episode of Second Lead Syndrome. So like, so I think... Like, BTS is in the public sphere in a way that few other groups are or have been in a long time. And I think that it's really important for us to look at their trajectory. Like, what role did American Hustle Life play in making them the artists that they now are? <laughs>